Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book Patients at Risk, Rebecca Bernard. There has been a dramatic rise in the number of clinics offering intravenous infusions of fluids and vitamins to treat an array of conditions and for a supposed wellness benefit. But do these treatments actually work? To discuss the risks and benefits of IV infusions outside of a traditional medical setting, I am joined by nephrologist Dr. Kristen Giordano. Dr. Giordano, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about your journey to become a physician and explain what the specialty of nephrology is all about. Absolutely. So it is the uh, study of the kidneys primarily, and that includes all of the roles the kidney does, including water management, as well as electrolyte management for the body, keeping that tight regulation of those systems, as well as controlling blood pressure. So we also do hypertension. It takes a long time to become a nephrologist. It's In medicine, we consider nephrology, I think, one of the most complicated fields, especially cognitively, meaning it's not so much of procedures, although there's dialysis, but an awful lot of thinking about the human body and balancing all of these different variables. And it, it takes a long time to learn how to do what you do. Tell the audience a little bit about you know what it takes to become a nephrologist to master fluid balance and electrolytes and vitamins and all the things that you do. So we do the four years of medical school, like every other physician. And then we do a three-year internal medicine residency, which um, averages around 70 hours a week or so. And then we complete a two-year fellowship on top of that to hone our skills as future nephrologists. So it takes a long time to learn this. It's not something that is taken lightly, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's so concerning to see all of these clinics popping up, offering different types of cocktails and intravenous infusions, because to actually learn how to manage those things, it took you a lot of years to become an expert on them. And a lot of the people running these infusion centers, I would say many of them are not even physicians. And uh, certainly they uh, do not have the type of training and experience that you do. So you've seen some of these IV bars. Do you have them where you are? Of course, they are everywhere. I think any major city has uh, several popping up. Any city that's associated with bachelorette parties like Nashville, uh, for sure has these pop-up infusions that are even right outside the major streets where people are traditionally partying. They'll post up a little mobile van and they will hook you up to an IV and give you some quote-unquote hydration. Yeah, they're all over my area of Southwest Florida as well. I mean, so many of them. And as you mentioned, they offer things like fluid infusions for dehydration, say for hangovers. Um, But also a lot of them are promoting these wellness benefits for people that really don't have any type of medical condition. And they're promised to do all sorts of things to make you feel your best and have vitality and things like that. So let's talk about some of the infusions that are offered. And actually, let's just start with hangovers. Uh, That is a really common one. So as a nephrologist, who would actually need an IV infusion for let's say a hangover? Pretty much anyone who is capable of handling oral intake of fluids, meaning drinking water or Gatorade or whatever your rehydration. I've seen these liquid IV salt 
concoctions. If you're able to hold down, meaning you're not actively vomiting up fluids, you do not need IV hydration. So very few people actually medically need IV infusions for hangovers, for dehydration. And I'm guessing if they really needed that, if they were vomiting that much, they could not keep down liquids that probably they should be evaluated medically and not just going to like a pop-up clinic. Absolutely. You mentioned at the beginning, a lot of these people don't have medical conditions, but I think what's scary for me is that it's they might not know that they have medical conditions either. So we know, for example, for chronic kidney disease, and we'll get into some of these specific concoctions as the show goes on, 90% of patients with chronic kidney disease don't even know they have chronic kidney disease. And so these are people who are vulnerable to electrolyte abnormalities. And then you're throwing on top of that an IV infusion with question mark what that is, even in there. Um, This is a recipe for disaster. So if I'm a person that just, you know, had too much to drink, I went to the bachelorette party and then I see this ad and it looks really cool and maybe a celebrity had this done. So I thought, well, let me just call up and get an IV infusion. But I actually don't know that maybe I have something wrong with my kidneys. What could happen to me? So it's also depends on what's in, in the fluid. So I'm not sure, you know, we talk about things like the quote unquote Myers cocktail which has something like magnesium in it. Magnesium actually doesn't have that much. I looked it up. It's about 400 milligrams, I think is what's listed. It's a very small amount. To treat an actual magnesium deficiency, you would be looking at 2,000 to 4,000 milligrams. And if you have 4,000 milligrams of magnesium and you have chronic kidney disease, you can actually cause magnesium toxicity and have contractions of your muscles And really it's a serious condition, which sometimes requires things like dialysis. The other portion of this becomes your sodium levels. What are your sodium levels in relation to water? So a lot of people think about sodium as having too little or too much salt, but it's actually a water problem. So it's typically too much water, too little water. And overcorrecting that too quickly can cause swelling in your brain and cause permanent brain damage. Yeah. So this could actually be life-threatening. And Even a person that doesn't have any health conditions, there are a lot of things that can go wrong during an IV infusion. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So common, common, common things that happen with IV um, infusions. Anytime you put a needle into a blood vessel, you can get inflammation called phlebitis. Um, You can also get an infection and an infection that can infect your blood and cause something called sepsis or septic shock, which can lead to to death. What's most concerning, I, I was reading more about these companies that are allowing, the way they kind of skirt around this is they have a compounding pharmacy. So they compound their own IV infusions and those are not really particularly FDA regulated. So you don't A, know what you're getting. B, FDA can come and write and investigate. There are some regulations regarding sterility and things like that. But what I was reading was the FDA, when they have gone and investigated some of these IV infusion clinics after someone's made a complaint, there were blatantly unsanitary conditions, including people not wearing gloves, people wearing street clothes, just really unsafe conditions, which then can cause bacteria to enter into that IV bag. And if that bacteria is put into your blood, you can have an overwhelming infection pretty quickly. Right. I mean, we're talking about something getting injected directly into your bloodstream. So Mm -hmm. any little bit of bacteria, any little bit of fungus, I remember there was some problems with that with I think it was in Mexico, people getting surgery and the instruments were contaminated. 
So this is a, a, a pretty serious undertaking. They make it sound very casual, but actually, if it's not done properly, it can be extremely dangerous. And we are hearing of cases where people are being seriously harmed and even killed at IV infusion centers. Let's talk about some of the promises that they make. We have established that there are definitely risks associated with this. And then the question is, what is the real benefit? And you mentioned IV, just hydration in general, probably a very, very limited, if probably zero benefit to someone who can actually drink fluids. But what do you know about things like high dose vitamin C, glutathione, and NAD plus? These are some of the concoctions that are being touted as being, you know, so healthy for you to use. So um, NAD plus, vitamin C, and glutathione are all antioxidants that are naturally occurring in our body or are produced by our body with some basic building blocks. So for example, NAD plus is a major antioxidant that has purported use for anti-aging and vitality and things like that. The precursor to NAD plus is actually a B3 supplement, which we have used for a long time. It's primarily from nicotinic acid or niacin. And we used to use that a lot for cholesterol issues. We know that there are issues with high doses of niacin causing headaches, dizziness, flushing. We know that it also can cause hepatic toxicity. Now, in the IV world, as opposed to orally, we know that you can take it in orally and that can increase NAD plus in your body, but it's unclear that there's not actually been a proven connection in the studies that I reviewed um, for benefit. However, if you inject it in your IV, there's a pretty quick plasma degradation, meaning breakdown by a component called CD38. And it's actually cleaved, meaning broken down right into nicotinamide and ADP ribose, which makes it basically ineffective as an IV therapy. Um, so so what you're even though- is that this, this probably isn't doing anything at all for people. Correct. I mean, it's a great idea. We know that there have been some studies about this, but almost all the studies have been in in oral administration. And all that they've shown is that if you take it orally, it increases the levels. It hasn't actually shown much benefit in specifically, they looked at type one diabetics, none. In Parkinson's, there was maybe a benefit, but again, that was oral administration, not IV. Well, let me tell you what some of the promises are about NAD+. What I'm hearing from you is there's not really good science to show that it does anything. And what is being promised is IV therapy with NAD can help improve many aspects of health, including energy levels, mood, mental clarity, hydration, and recovery time. It is effective in reducing the appearance of wrinkles and age spots. Hmm. I mean, is there, I mean, really, does that sound like anything that you've seen any evidence to support? Not from what I read at all in terms of human trials um, and from what I know about IV specifically. In fact, I was trying to figure out, you know, what naturally increases NAD. And the number one thing for those of you who are looking out for the fountain of youth who wouldn't want that is actually exercise. So all we need to do, I know, is get out there, walk, do strength training. And then there's some evidence for intermittent fasting and decreasing carbs. Love this because what you just said is free. And this NAD, um, the cost of this particular clinic, which by the way is called Fountain of Youth, which is hilarious because you just said that, uh, the cost per infusion is $500. 
And there are people out there reading these promises. And, you know, of course, it sounds great. Like, who wouldn't want these things? So let's talk about high dose vitamin C, which I'll tell you how much they're charging for that, because it's it's so fascinating just to see that people, I guess somebody is paying for for this a high dose of vitamin C for this immune boost, $200 per infusion. So what is, uh, and it claims that vitamin C is a powerful antioxidant that helps your body eliminate free radicals, unstable molecules that can cause muscle damage, that can cause cellular damage. Vitamin C also supports the immune system, bones, muscles, and blood vessels. All of those things about vitamin C are true, but (laughs) there is no evidence for high dose, certainly not IV infusion of vitamin C. And we have actually seen people try this in the ICU setting for things like septic shock, thinking this might help. And we have tried to use this because it's inexpensive. Wouldn't it be great if this worked? And we haven't seen that. What we do know is that the average American um, is getting plenty of vitamin C. We're meeting the RDA, um, which is the recommendation uh, for 70 to 90 milligrams, which you can actually get from a one medium orange, <laughs> but actually you can get a lot of vitamin C from green and red peppers. So here we go. Eating healthy. turns out you get all the nutrients you need. We do know smokers are, smokers are at a high, high risk for vitamin C deficiency. So those are folks that need to probably be a little bit more eating more vitamin C foods, but we just, it's just not largely a problem in developed countries. When you talk about potential toxicity, so your kidneys actually get rid of vitamin C extra. So when you get this IV infusion, sounds great. Your kidneys are just making you make urine. So you're peeing it out, very expensive urine and $200, I think you said. And we know that And when you're talking about doses in excess of 2000 milligrams, and I think most of these doses are around 4,000 milligrams, you are at a high risk for developing kidney stones. So calcium axillate kidney stones are associated with high doses of vitamin C. So that is definitely something that people should be aware of because kidney stones are real, I mean, actual pain um, and can cause hospitalizations. Yes. Wow. So that definitely, there's not a lot of really any benefit and definitely major risks there. What about glutathione? They say here, again, a powerful antioxidant that makes, that your body (laughs) makes and uses to support detoxification, cellular repair, and the list goes on. As we age, however, our levels of this key compound begin to decline. The body uses glutathione to modulate the immune system, regulate inflammation, repair DNA, and fight certain infections caused by viruses, bacteria, fungi, and parasites. Again, all of that is true. Yeah, I I looked up, I tried really hard to find studies on glutathione, and there is a paucity of data and certainly no data in support of it. There's no data against it in terms of harm, but um, I kind of feel like if I'm injecting something straight into my blood vessels, I should probably know what I'm injecting, whether or not that's helpful. There was one study I found that should show um, increases of glutathione, not through IV infusion, but through oral intake did increase glutathione in your blood that was detectable. And there was a comment by the authors in the conclusion that said it increased or supported a decrease of hemoglobin A1C, which is the marker for blood glucose control in type 2 diabetes compared to those who were not getting glutathione. However, when I actually looked at the data, the scatter plot, the hemoglobin A1C actually just crossed over the middle. So that was not statistically significant. So if you're reading any of these studies, it goes to show that you really need to actually look at the data they're presenting, not just read the conclusions, because you would see 
that the only thing statistically significant was that it increased the amount of glutathione in your body. No benefits. Right. And whether that actually did anything, we, we don't know. What Correct. about this Myers cocktail? Because that's been around, I guess, since the 1970s. It's It says it's an infusion of, let's mm-hmm. see, it's got vitamin B12, B complex, vitamin C, magnesium, calcium, and electrolytes. Expensive urine. It was created by Dr. Myers, I think in I think it was actually in the 60s, maybe um, at Mayo Clinic, if I remember. And so sounds great, right? You're like Mayo Clinic and this is something we should do. So we actually do a similar concoction in the hospital We called Banana Bag, right? We use thiamine and some other things to support people coming with alcohol-associated diseases where we're concerned about deficiencies causing uh, mental status changes. This particular concoction has a couple of things that make, make me kind of a little bit concerned. One, the extra vitamin B12, et cetera, doesn't do much for you. Again, you pee it out. It's processed by the liver. In fact, elevated levels, if we, if you came to my office and I saw elevated levels, I might be concerned about something called multiple myeloma or, or uh, blood cancer if I didn't know you were getting these supplements on the side. And then two, the magnesium, they're like, oh, this will help with your headaches. But 400 milligrams is not enough to help with headaches. You can get that in a pill. 400 milligrams does nothing. Um, you would need 2,000 milligrams to 4,000 milligrams. Really, we used 4,000 milligrams um, to treat migraines. You also mentioned vitamin C we talked about, and then it talks about calcium. No one needs calcium directed into your veins. This is only going to cause kidney stones and things like that. And and hypercalcemia is a huge problem. It can cause constipation, uh, mental status changes, all these things that you definitely don't want. And then the last thing you mentioned was quote unquote electrolytes. What does that mean? It could mean something like an IV infusion of potassium. That is highly dangerous. That's actually what we use for lethal injection for states that allow that. So I I would not be interested in putting this in my veins, certainly not without getting my lab values ahead of time. We don't give these kind of infusions without having the basic, what we call the basic metabolic panel, which tells me what is your sodium, your potassium, your calcium today. And that influences which kind of IV fluids I give you. You know, it's, I think back to the eighties when beta carotene was the rage. And I remember the, you know, hearing about free radicals and, and the antioxidants, and it was going to help, you know, prevent infections and things like that. And it actually turned out that it was associated with an increased risk of cancer. So there was a lot of, there are a lot of things about these infusions and these supplements and high doses that may have consequences that we don't even know about yet. And I think with this being like a new rage, I don't think we'll know for sure until some years down the road, mm-hmm. whether people, you know, how much harm it's actually going to potentially cause people that are getting these routinely. I absolutely agree. You know, the problem with supplements in the United States is that they aren't really regulated. And there's been a lot of studies that have shown when you buy even herbal supplements, oral herbal supplements, there aren't what is in there, what they say is on the bottle isn't actually in, in this pill that you're taking and you could be taking something completely unknown. I believe strongly that herbal supplements do and can work for certain things because they are chemically active compounds. But that means that they can change things in your body. They can cause side effects. They can interact with your other medications. And we, it's very important that we are cognizant of what herbal supplements someone might be taking, including IV infusion. So if you do decide to do these things, regardless of what I might think about safety, please let your primary care doctor know so they can interpret your lab data knowing that. And then they can also check for interactions. 
So for those who are interested, Memorial Sloan Kettering actually has a website about herbal supplements. And you can read both a patient side and a physician side about what are the purported uses for it? What's the mechanism of it? Um, and they do have mechanisms because again, they're chemically active. What are potential side effects and what are some potential me- medication interactions? And I think it's really important for physicians and patients to both be aware that these are chemicals that can and do change body chemistry and affect you. There, there is a role for things that is, if you know that you're getting what you think you're getting mm-hmm. and if it's being medically supervised, Speaking of which, I think that many of these IV infusion bars are being owned and operated by non-physicians in states that require physician supervision. Often, you know, there will be a physician that is the medical director, at least in name only, hopefully doing actual direct supervision, but that doesn't seem to be always the case. Talk about what can go wrong when there's not a physician involved in any type of care, but especially in IV infusions. I think when a physician isn't involved and you have a non-physician, whether that's a PA, MP, or whatever your state requires running these, they might not be fully aware of how certain IV infusion might interact with either medication or someone's medical condition or put those patients at unnecessary risk for increased complications beyond what we already suspect might happen. I think what people, I'm guessing, the public out there, they are probably just thinking, These must be safe because why would they be allowed to exist if they weren't? So they probably like, hey, you know, there's laws against false advertising and there's, you know, there's laws supposedly to protect people from endangerment by medical professionals. So why, where's the, where's the disconnect between what you're telling me and what I believe to be true as well, which is that there is no real medical value to these and they can be dangerous and the fact that they are popping up on every corner. I think that this might be a case where the law has not quite caught up with what's going on in widespread, what we're seeing. And I think it will, I hope, come uh, up quickly. We are seeing the FDA come down on some of these clinics more, and we are seeing medical boards get involved in cases where there have been bad outcomes and then discovering, oh, wait, there wasn't supervision there when there should have been. And I think we are going to start seeing more regulation that will hopefully see a peeling back of these. Why are doctors who should know better and who should understand this, why do you think they are agreeing to supervise these clinics or offering them themselves? I think the unfortunate reality is that almost every doctor I know is looking for a way out of traditional practice of medicine. It is getting increasingly hard to work under the conditions that we're working under with demands of our time and energy outside of the practice of medicine and not being able to connect with patients. So everyone's looking for their way out, but we still have to provide for our families, pay back loans, et cetera, et cetera. So this seems like an easy buck, right? I mean, you're charging $500 for an infusion. You can do that 20 times a day. Um, And then if you have an MP or someone running it in person, you don't even have to be there. It's, it's, um, seems like, oh, this is too good to be true because it is. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think the other piece of it, I think part of it definitely is financial, but I think the other thing is, you know, we're people pleasers. We want to make people happy. We want to make people feel good. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to have someone say, you know, doctor listened to me and gave me this infusion and I felt so much better. And now, you know, even if maybe it's placebo effect and there is something that we 
I think we yearn for that, like wanting to make people feel better. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like telling people eat right and exercise, that's not what they want to hear, you know, a quick fix. So, I mean, I kind of get that lure of wanting to be able to do something and make people feel better. In fact, I've had people say, but if, if it makes people feel better, what's the problem? But talk to us about what your thoughts are on, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about medical ethics in the, you know, the the four pillars, like beneficence, you know, meaning to do do good for people, non-maleficence, meaning to do no harm. And I think patient autonomy is what a lot of doctors are like, well, this is what patients want. I'm going to give it to them. And then justice. So to me, you're hitting patient autonomy, but you're not hitting beneficence because it's not, there's no evidence that it's helping. You're not hitting non-maleficence because you're potentially harming people. And then when it comes to justice, I can't help but think about when we have shortages. I remember during Hurricane Maria when, when um, in Puerto Rico where they make a lot of IV fluids, we couldn't get plain saline IV fluids for patients that legitimately needed it. So question just from a social justice perspective, you know, are we being good stewards of our resources? I mean, what are your thoughts when you think about this? I think those are all really good points. I think of myself as a physician, you know, I took an oath first to do no harm. uh, And this potentially goes against that. Uh, That's the first pillar for me. The second way I like to think of myself is, you know, as the person who has a lot of the knowledge and has studied this, it's an incredible privilege and an honor. And what I do with that knowledge is really important. And I can either allow people to harm themselves, right? I can give them what they want. That's the autonomy portion. Or I can help guide them with my knowledge and say, hey, this doesn't make sense. And here's why. And explain it to them. That takes a lot of time and energy, right? Time and energy that unfortunately with insurance companies, et cetera, breathing down our necks, we are unable to do that. And so we have this unsatisfactory relationship and we aren't able to help patients make the, the right choice. I think the other portion of what you're saying about shortages is absolutely true. We are seeing normal saline shortages again, even in the hospital setting. So I don't have infusions of certain things because oh, magnesium, that's in shortage too. Um, we can't get two milligram bags. We have to order four milligrams and which is a problem for my patients who can't take four milligrams because they have chronic kidney disease. Uh, so I do think that this is um, addressed this problem, like you said. And then lastly, looking at benefits, I really want to make sure that the things that I'm doing provide benefit for patients. And honestly, I'm not sure that this provides a true benefit other than maybe a short-term feel good because it feels good if you drink water. If you drink enough water, you actually do feel better. So of course you feel better if I give you, you know, 500, you know, 500 milliliters is 16 ounces of water. That's what you're getting. 16 ounces of water, a bottle of water. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of risk to take for something with really uh, probably zero benefit for the average person. Mm -hmm. Anything else that you would like to share uh, regarding this topic? I think this is just one of those areas for patients and, you know, consumers, buyer beware. And I think you need to be going in with your eyes wide open. You can make decisions to do things that are quote unquote legal. That doesn't mean it's always the smartest thing or the wisest thing. And I mentioned a couple of things that actually can increase for benefit for vitality, including things like exercise. And, you know, if I could prescribe exercise, that's what I would recommend for for patients. It does release all those feel-good hormones. And actually, we know that it can change your longevity projections. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Kristen Giordano, for joining me to discuss this really important topic. 
Thanks for listening, and if you'd like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, and the follow-up book Imposter Doctors, Patients at Risk. They're both available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com, and you can find them in paperback, in ebook, and in audiobook. If you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about advocating for our mission of physician-led care for all patients and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. You can learn more at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you have a suggestion, please send me a message through my website, patientsatrisk.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.